castle filled with hidden trapdoors, secret rooms, drop-offs, stairs that lead to nowhere, open pits, acid pits, acid baths, poisonous gath lines, murder rooms, and a furnace in the basement for burning bodies. An intelligent, extraordinary con man, swindler, master manipulator, the Chicago World's Fair, a string of serial murders spanning the U.S., perhaps England? Oh, this is a good one, friends. This is a good episode of Fangs and Folklore. Welcome to Fangs and Folklore here in the studio in the basement of the abandoned castle in the middle of the haunted forest. This is where we do our shows because the acoustics are great. <clears throat> I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert in all things monster, paranormal, supernatural, and horror. I'm a horror writer from the depths of the haunted swamps of Louisiana, and I welcome you to my horrifying world. Check out my books on Amazon. Uh, beginning with Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story. It's volume one in the Gravedigger series. The Gravediggers are a failing punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of monsters. It's horror comedy and it's super entertaining. Kindle, uh, paperback, and uh, first three in audiobook now. Four coming out audiobook soon. Stay tuned for my next standalone book coming out, which is about Jack the Ripper, which is very topical to tonight. Okay, so let's do our wine review, as is our custom here. I have a bottle tonight of Portuguese wine. I, I'm not an expert in Portuguese wine. I, know, I feel like I know French, Italian, Spanish wine pretty well. But when it comes to Portuguese wine, I've just had you know, some standards, but I'm not an expert. So I'm gonna, I don't know how to pronounce Portuguese correctly, so I'm going to try my best. It's called Rapariga da Quinta Reserva, and it's a 2018. Okay, uh, So I'm going to flash the label up there on the screen for you to take a look at. So here in the skull uh, goblet that I found here in the abandoned castle, we're going to have a sniff and then have a taste. Mm. Wow, that's really good. It's it's powerful. It has very very present tannins. They're very they're powerful tannins, but they're t uh, the they're tempered a little bit. Uh, I guess with some acidity. There are definitely some oak there. Uh, I think this was cellared in. Uh, French oak for two years. Uh, it's very subtle. It's very complex. Very smooth in the mouth. And uh, very much dark, dark fruit I can taste here. Black cherries, dark currants, uh, dark plums. And it's very balanced, though. And um, very, I don't know how to describe it. It's a powerful burst of flavor. <laughs> very nice. That's really good. I recommend that if you can get your hands on it. Mm. Oh, that's good. Um, all right. So, I had not planned, uh, and by the way, real quickly, the grape in it is 100% uh, Alentejo. Alentejo is another grape I'm not uh, hugely familiar with, but it sure is good. I hadn't planned to continue the Serial Killer series any longer, but I have come across a theory that I think is just too interesting to not share with you. So remember last time we talked about Jack the Ripper. Well, I'm going to talk about an American serial killer today and what relation he may or may not have with Jack the Ripper. My serial killer disclaimer, I oppose any and all harm of anyone, okay? I remember that just because we are interested in horror and serial killers does not mean we like what they do or approve of it. Now, we looked at Jack the Ripper, some of the theories about who he may have been. I, uh, I still like the Walter Sickert theory because he was the artist, if you remember, who painted scenes that were very close, if not exactly, the crime scenes of Jack the Ripper before the, the crime scene photos had been released to the public. That's pretty damning evidence there. But I want to talk about tonight an American serial killer whose name was Herman Webster Mudgett, and he went by several aliases, the most famous of which is H.H. Holmes. You may have heard of H.H. Holmes. He's called the first American serial killer. He is the first that we know of. Uh, he was in the 1800s. 
And what a serial killer he was. Boy, he, he really took this to an art. He loved his work, and he was a master at it. Of course, his work was horrible and sick, but you know. Now, some, some historians argue that Holmes was not a true serial killer, but that he killed from money, that he harvested organs uh, to sell to medical schools, and that he sold bodies to medical schools, then used burnt bodies for life insurance scams and fraud. He did do those things, but after examining his life in more detail, I'm convinced that he enjoyed killing as well, that he got a thrill out of it, and that he does fit the definition of a serial killer. So let's take a look at the main points of Holmes' criminal career, and then let's look at this new theory that intrigues me. So, he was born again Herman, Mudgett, Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire on May 16, 1861. Okay, he had brothers and sisters. His family was uh, descendants of English immigrants new to the U.S., and he went of course, at that time, he was Herman, not H.H. Not H. Holmes yet. He was the third sibling born to their uh, family. His father was a farmer and a trader. His parents were very religious, Methodists, and I don't think that they were necessarily super poor, but they weren't rich. You know, just the average person in America at that time lived in a small town, did some farming and so forth. He clearly was a psychopath slash sociopath slash the modern term antisocial personality disorder, from early on, you know, his life was a series of cons and schemes and frauds and murders. It showed that he didn't care about anyone at all, even his supposed friends and associates and even wives and children. He didn't care. He had no empathy or sympathy for anyone. He is the pure, pure sociopath. All he cared about was enriching himself at any cost. He did not have sympathy. That's very clear when you look at his life. He actually was married three times. His first wife was July 4th, 1878. He married a lady called Clara Lovering, and they had a son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, uh, born in 1880 in New Hampshire. Now, H.H. Uh, um, H. Holmes, as we're going to call him from now on in this podcast, he was rumored by friends to uh, physically abuse Clara. She would show up with black eyes and, you know, beat up face and kind of just stay to herself, all the typical signs of spousal abuse. So he was a real son of a bitch from early on. Uh, he entered a med medical school in the University, University excuse me, of Michigan in 1882, and he graduated. So he was a licensed medical doctor. He uh, worked in the anatomy lab, I guess, as for practice and um, under the um, tutoring of an anatomy instructor. And they said that uh, <laughs> his instructor and he got into a grave robbing little racket. And that was very common at the time, both in England and the U.S. Medical schools had trouble getting cadavers for, for teaching, and so they would kind of pay people under the table to dig up corpses and bring them to them for that purpose. And apparently police kind of looked the other way a little bit. It was the only way they could get these cadavers. So later on when Holmes is accused of murder, he claims that he was not a murderer. He said all he was was just an insurance fraudster. He admitted to that using cadavers for life insurance, but not murdering anyone. But we'll see that that's not true. So he had a little scheme from early on. In 1886, he's still married to Clara. He marries another woman, Myrta Bel Belknap. Yes, at the same time, neither knew about the other, in Pennsylvania in 1862. Um, so he then filed for divorce from Clara, the first wife, accusing her of cheating. But from what we know, that's not true. He was just a, a real bastard, you know. Um, and the divorce was finalized, and then, uh, sorry, it was never finalized because the court said there's no proof of her infidelity, and she never signed the papers, in fact. She may never have even known about the papers. So Holmes is just living his life with two wives now. And remember, in those days, in the 1800s, there was no electronics, no records like this. It was basically 
you know, your, your record of marriage was in the local courthouse or your local church, and when they said, when you're going to get married a second time, they say, promise me you've never married before. You say, okay, I promise, and they'd allow it. There's no other way to, to do a, you know, a national network of marriage licenses. All right, Holmes moves to Chicago, Illinois, big city, in August of 1886. That's when he first started using the alias H.H. H. Holmes in earnest. He uh, began working in a, a drugstore owned by a lady, Elizabeth Holton, at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood, which is kind of a, a urban suburb of Chicago that's still around today. He got hired at this drugstore, this pharmacy, and apparently he was a really good worker, worked hard, stayed extra, you know. Uh, he really impressed his employers, which is interesting, because oftentimes sociopaths and serial killers kind of go from job to job and get fired and never really do well at jobs. So he ended up um, buying the pharmacy from the owners, and now he's a business owner. So what he does, he purchased an empty lot across the street, and he uh, began the construction of a building. This was going to be a building with stores on the first floor, and on the second and third floor, apartments or a hotel. Very common in those days, still common today, right? First floor businesses. So he starts this, and um, basically what he would do, he would hire construction companies then uh, fire them in the middle of their work. They build a little bit, then you'd fire them claiming they did bad work and refuse to pay them, very much like kind of a, an 1800 Donald Trump, <laughs> to be honest with you. That's what Trump is famous for doing, too. Uh, and so basically, he, no construction crew ever had the full knowledge of how the whole thing was being constructed. It was piece by piece, bit by bit. Uh, he added a third floor, and he wanted to use it, he said, as a hotel during the World's Fair in Chicago, which was a huge deal a huge deal. The World, World's Fair in Chicago attracted people from all over the world. It was enormous. It was a huge enterprise. And so basically it's a three-story building, apartments, hotel, and businesses. It's now known as the Holmes Murder Castle, and let me tell you why. Some historians today say that it was nothing but a normal hotel, but that's not the case because we have police reports from the time when they explored the hotel and people who escaped it to have eyewitness testimony that it was a madhouse. There were trap doors, there were rooms lined with metal to, to, to prevent sound from getting through. Rooms were fitted with gas pipes that Holmes controlled from his own room, like with poisonous gas. There were acid pits that you fall into through trap doors, stairs that would go up, you'd open a door, fall into an acid pit, chutes to drop bodies to the basement. And in the basement, he had a di dissection table along with a furnace to burn the bodies in. So there was like a body chute. There were dead ends, confusing halls, things like this. Rooms with five doors. You know, some of the doors led to a brick wall. Just a bizarre... Uh, you may have heard of the Winchester house, the, the, the widow of the man who made Winchester rifles. The house is still around. It was kind of built like this with these weird rooms and staircases and empty dead ends and stuff, drop-offs. But she did it. When, Miss Winchester did it because she was afraid of spirits haunting her from the ghosts of the people her husband's rifles had killed. While... Holmes did it to kill people. You know, he was absolutely killing people. And this was documented by the police, the, the, the layout, the floor plan. The hotel caught fire in 1895 and burned to the ground. Well, basically was gutted and burned. Some believe uh, by arsonists who, whom Holmes hired to hide evidence, but we'll never know. The fire gutted it. It was de demolished. So today there's no building there. It's, not, it's actually now it's a post office in Chicago, a post office in an empty lot. Now, Holmes used the murder castle and a similar one he built in Texas, <laughs> in fact, almost an exact copy, to lure, lure in mostly young women, 
either by uh, charming them romantically or by promising them work or by offering them a cheap rate. They just got to town looking for work or they were there for the World's Fair. And then he would kill them, butcher them, and then sell their bodies to medical schools or use the body in life insurance fraud schemes. Uh, he made a ton of money with these scams, by the way. He was a wealthy man. He also made a ton of money by swindling anyone and everyone he came into contact with and did business with. Um, primarily, he was a con man. But he did, t uh, he did seem to enjoy murder, too, because when he would kill someone, he usually would kill them by cutting their throat. Then he would butcher the body. Sure, he harvested some organs, but he would continue butchering it beyond just what is, what is necessary to make money. He really enjoyed it. I mean, he slaughtered these bodies in his little secret room in the basement there. You know, and also the cre creativity he put into the murder castle make it seem to me like he enjoyed the hell out of killing. You know, I don't think he only did it for money. His downfall was when he killed his business associate, Benjamin uh, Peitzel. This is a man he was running, who was running schemes with him, and he ended up killing the guy for a life insurance fraud, along with Holmes's third wife and her children. He was convicted of the Peitzel murder, though he confessed of many, for many others. He was uh, convicted of murder, right? And so on May 7, 1896, he was in uh, Moyaman Singh Prison in Philadelphia, and he was hanged. And until the moment of his death, he remained calm, friendly, showing very little fear or anxiety, you know, like a true sociopath. Um, he was hanged and buried. His coffin, he requested that his coffin be buried in three plots, two empty plots, him in the middle, with cement poured over him and 10 feet deep. He was concerned grave robbers would steal his body. Um, when he was hanged, his neck didn't break. He, he you know, when you, when you hang a person, what's supposed to happen is it breaks the neck. They die instantly, presumably without a ton of pain. I guess it snaps the spinal cord. Sometimes it doesn't happen. And the law says you have to let him die. So he kind of hanged there, twitching for like 15 minutes, which is torturous. You know, he suffocated over time. Horrible way to die. But again, you know, his victims died horribly too. Uh, just before he was hanged, he said this, quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing." Close quote. He loved killing. He loved murder. There's a little thing called the Curse of Holmes. It's, it's a little interesting. Uh, after his execution, several people involved in the prosecution and conviction died in weird, mysterious circumstances. And there's a theory that Holmes bribed his way out of his hanging. Remember, he was super rich. And that a cadaver was hanged instead of him, and that he made off and escaped and killed these people. But, very recently, his family... Uh, the descendants um, exhumed his body to see if that were true. His DNA was found in, 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 the, tomb, in the grave. So yes, H.H. H. Holmes died and was buried. That was really him in the tomb. He was just paranoid about grave robbers, I guess, which is why he had that cement poured over him. So now, Holmes' great-great-grandson has a theory that H.H. H. Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper. When I first heard this, I thought, no, no way. There's, there's no way, because Holmes and the Ripper's M.O.s and modus operandi are both um, they're very different. You know, I thought they're, they're nothing like each other. Jack the Ripper was a disorganized, frantic, you know, opportunistic killer, while Holmes was very calm and, and, and um, organized and took his time and planned out these, these uh, cons and schemes. Um, Jack did it almost in a rage where Holmes was kind of cold-blooded cold and deliberate. Well, it turns out, when I examine this theory, that the Ripper and Holmes had much more in common than I ever would have imagined. It's not a new idea that Holmes might have been the Ripper, but it's a more recent theory, a more complete theory, done by Holmes's great-great-grandson. Now, his name is Jeff Mudgett. 
He is a lawyer and a former U.S. Naval Reserve commander. That's pretty impressive to reach that level in the Naval Reserve. So basically, he inherited some stuff from H.H. H. Holmes, his great-great-grandfather, including some diaries. And in these diaries, Holmes describes murdering prostitutes in London, just like Jack the Ripper. So the great-great-grandson thinks, huh, that's odd. You know, I wonder if he was Jack the Ripper. Because the, the kills that Holmes described in his diary were just like the, the Ripper kills. So he started doing some investigation. These diaries were subjected to handwriting analysis, and indeed, uh, they had some similarities with the Ripper letters. Okay? Now, in addition to these diaries, let's look at some more evidence for this theory that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. There is a really interesting circumstantial case. There's yet to be, it's yet to be proven with DNA or anything like that. It would be hard to do that from such old, an old cold case. But let's take a look. First of all, H.H. H. Holmes, like I said, was a master con man. He conned everyone. He was involved in dozens and dozens of lawsuits, particularly in Chicago. And there's a trail of legal paperwork that, that, that he left behind that you can follow almost his daily activities from day to day. Almost every day of his life, it, 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 he got a lawsuit or he was you know, involved in a scam or, or he was investigated for this or that. The paper trail ends abruptly in April 1888. There's nothing. Then again in 1891, it starts up again back in Chicago. These were the exact dates of the Jack the Ripper killings. Okay? This is, so when Jack the Ripper is killing, H.H. Holmes' paper trail stops, goes quiet for the, for the while that Jack the Ripper killed, and then picks up again in the U.S. That shows that he had opportunity, right? So remember, to accuse someone of a, of a murder, you need to show that they had the opportunity to do it, uh, what else, the motive to do it, uh, the weapon to do it, and then you have to know their modus operandi, how they did it. So Holmes had opportunity, okay? Now, the famous letters that Jack the Ripper wrote to the media, which we looked at in the last episode, about three of them are considered genuine, up to three of them, and the rest are just considered like pranks and things like that. Uh, this, the great-great-grandson had these, hand, uh, these letters uh, from Jack the Ripper analyzed by handwriting and language experts. They concluded that the author of these letters used American English and not British English. They said whoever wrote the Jack the Ripper letters was almost certainly an American, not an Englishman. The, the vocabulary he used, you know, they're experts in what was used at the time. And so, like, it would be the equivalent today if someone wrote about an elevator rather than a lift, you would think they were American. Or if they, or if they called a, tr a truck a lorry, you would say they were English, that kind of thing. So they said, yeah, an American wrote these letters, not an Englishman. So he, he wasn't using British English. So again, Jack the Ripper very well may have been an American like Holmes. There's another little piece of evidence. Now, the Jack the Ripper murders ended after the brutal uh, slaughter of Mary Kelly, which was on uh, November 9th, 1888. She was the one who was butchered in her rental room in Miller's Court. Uh, when he, Jack the Ripper went home with her, she was a prostitute. And in that closed room, they had privacy, he had time, he had freedom. He wasn't rushed, you know. So he totally butchered her. If you remember, he cut off her breast, he cut her torso from, from neck to groin, opened it up, removed organs, cut the flesh from her thigh so it was just bone. I mean, he really did this like he was doing a dissection of a, of a cadaver or even an animal. That was the last Ripper kill, and it just abruptly stopped. Now, if you know anything about serial killers, they, it only stops a few ways. Sometimes they age out of it, like they turn and get in their 60s, 70s, and they just stop killing for whatever reason. However, the Ripper is always reported to have been a younger man. Uh, they might die, okay, that could stop a series of a serial killer if he dies. They might be arrested, uh, or they might move away. 
And so no one really knows why the Ripper stopped, why Jack the Ripper stopped. Well, Holmes, Holmes was back in the U.S. right after the Ripper killer stopped, but there's more. There is a ship's manifest uh, for that exact time with the name H.H. Holmes listed as a passenger. Now, was H.H. Holmes a common name at the time? I don't know. I assume Holmes was fairly common, you know, H.H. Herman or whatever. But, but to put it as H.H. Holmes was not super common at the time, not really. And of course, it doesn't mean there wasn't more than one H.H. Holmes, but this just adds to the circumstantial evidence that a person named H.H. Holmes traveled from England to the U.S. right when the Jack the Ripper murders ended. And then Holmes picks up again in the U.S. Now let's look at the M.O., the modus operandi of the two killers. At first, I thought they were so different. However, Holmes preferred to be methodical, right? To, be, to completely butcher his victims, to, to take pleasure in it, to use their organs and, and to just skin them, basically cut them down to the bone. Okay, that's what, that's what Holmes preferred to do. Now, Holmes was suspected, starting his childhood, he was suspected of killing several relatives when he was growing up. He was born and grew up in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, and a few of his cousins and relatives died every time he was around, often by drowning or often by being cut. Holmes was always there to be the first one to discover their bodies. It's a little odd, right? Unusual to say the least. These unnatural deaths uh, at the time. Of course, in the 1800s, dying of a disease or something, a childhood disease, was not uncommon. But for children to just randomly drown, you know, and then the same person is always there around them, it's a little uncommon. So this shows that if he was the one killing them, it shows that he indeed used opportunistic killings to pounce on them in the spur of the moment. So there is evidence that both Jack and Holmes did these kind of instantaneous kills of opportunity. Now, both Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes killed by cutting the throat before they butchered the body. So they weren't butchering these, these victims alive. They cut the throat first. Both H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper did that with just about every single victim. Same M.O. Now, both Jack and Holmes had kills that were outside and kills that were inside. Outside, Jack the Ripper had, you know, he would come upon a prostitute, cut her throat, throw her to the ground, start cutting out her organs until he heard someone coming or until the police blew a whistle. Then he'd run away. Um, Holmes killing, his early kills seemed to have been like that. But when Jack the Ripper had the privacy of the Miller's courtroom with Mary Kelly, look at what he did. He took his time, he savored it, he cut a torso down the middle, a vertical cut, he removed organs, he butchered the body. Holmes, in his murder castle, had all the time and privacy he wanted down there in the basement. No one even knew about these secret passages. He did the exact same thing. This is the exact same M.O. Kill with a cut to the throat, uh, a vertical cut down the torso, remove organs, and butchered the body. And they both had a, a thing about removing wombs, you know, uteri. So you can see that, at first blush, Holmes and Jack have very different M.O.s, but in reality, they were exactly the same. When they had privacy and time, they killed in the exact same manners. Next, whenever Holmes was in the U.S., Chicago, New England, Texas, and other places, murders happened there that even police in the paper said were identical to Jack the Ripper. They even called in London policemen from Scotland Yard to investigate, to help investigate, because these murders were happening in the U.S., just like Jack the Ripper murders, and it happened to be every time Holmes would go somewhere, the murders would start up. Every time he left, they would stop. And th this is all reported in newspapers and by police. So many police at that time believed indeed that Jack the Ripper had moved to the U.S. and continued his killing streak. If so, Holmes happened to be around every time that happened. Um, now, the, the Ripper murders were believed by police at the time to have been committed with uh, a doctor's surgical knives, probably even a, a scalpel or a, um, 
a little knife, a little surgical knife. Uh, as well as some anatomical knowledge they believed that, that Jack the Ripper had, the way he would find organs so quickly, cut them out. You know, you have to know where organs are. You know, if you, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know, butchered an animal, gone hunting, but, you know, it's, it's just a lot of red and <laughs> gore in there. You have to know exactly what you're looking for to go for that organ. Jack the Ripper, in a matter of minutes, could go exactly for the organ he wanted. So he probably had some anatomical knowledge. Remember, H.H. Holmes was a medical doctor who had anatomical knowledge. So a surgeon's knife was used by Jack the Ripper. Holmes was a doctor who had a set of surgical knives that were, surprise, surprise, made in England, not in America. That was not common at the time. There were plenty of American companies making surgical tools. Holmes had a set from England. In fact, we know this because he had a set sharpened once, and the person, the sharpener, commented later that he noticed, oh, this is, these are English knives. And so Holmes had English surgical knives. Jack the Ripper killed with English surgical knives. Again, this is more evidence. This is, um, it's, it's a bunch of circumstantial evidence, I understand. And like I said, we're never going to know for sure who Jack the Ripper was because advanced forensic techniques didn't exist in 1880. <laughs> There's another fascinating, to me, this is, this is really the best evidence there is, piece of uh, circumstantial evidence. So Holmes' great-great-grandson, who, who has this theory, he procured a box of papers and photographs from a place that Holmes had lived in, a house he had lived in, where Holmes was known to have received in the mail and collected photographs and kept them in a box. It's almost certain that this box belonged to H.H. Holmes. Now, the box contained many, many photos. So what, what the great-great-grandson did, he went to an expert who uses computer software to analyze photos uh, and to compare, compare them to other photos and or sketches to see what the percentage is that this photo is the same, the person in this photo is the same as the person in this photo, same person, right? Or the person in this courtroom sketch is the same person that we see in this photo. And if you get like above a 50%, 60% match, it's pretty convincing that, that that actually is the same person. You know, when we take pictures, there's always different angles and it's not gonna be 100%, but the traits of the face can be analyzed by the computer you know, to, to make it pretty good. It's kind of like your iPhone has facial recognition, very much similar technology, but the government uses this, so the technology is probably more advanced. All right, so these pictures are analyzed by this expert, uh, forensic expert, and they prove to be people in Holmes' life, associates, his wives, some victims, people, you know, he conned, people who helped him to con, his assistant, and so forth. So this is Holmes' box. Now, the analysis says there's a very strong possibility that Holmes owned this box and that those photos were of people he knew. One of the photos in the box looks very much like Elizabeth Stride, who was the Jack the Ripper's third victim. When analyzed, there's a 65% chance that it is the same person. And in this analysis, that is, that's considered very strong. So it's very likely that H.H. Holmes had a box in it was a photograph of Elizabeth Stride, Jack the Ripper's third victim. That really, to me, that connects the two immediately. Why else would he have had a, a photograph of an of a English prostitute? You know, I mean, why else would he have had that? That's very strong evidence. So this theory is continuing to develop, in fact. The great-great-grandson is still doing evidence, uh, sorry, still doing investigation to find evidence. And the more that comes up, I will certainly update you. This is all, in my opinion, circumstantial evidence, but it makes a very strong case for H.H. Holmes as Jack the Ripper. He essentially confessed to it in his diaries. He had the same, he had the weapon, British surgical knives, the opportunity, remember the Ripper killings occurred when he was in London, stopped when he left. His name's on the ship manifest, everywhere it goes in the US, Ripper style occurrings occur. 
He had the motive, selling organs and bodies for profit, insurance scams, and enjoying killing. And the same MO as Jack the Ripper, cutting the throat to kill the victim, then if you have the time and the privacy, butchering the body, removing organs. They both began with kills of opportunity, proceeded into more advanced, organized, deliberate kills as they had time and privacy. It certainly makes him a strong suspect. You know, police would have investigated him with all this evidence. And at the very most, it's a very solid case for Holmes as Jack the Ripper. I think it's very intriguing. I still like the, the Walter Sickert theory, the artist, because as I said, he made paintings that mimicked the crime scenes of Jack the Ripper before the photos were released to the public. I, I'll put the H.H. The Holmes theory right up there with the Walter Sickert theory. It's just an amazing coincidence, isn't it? All these things, and circumstantial evidence really is that. It's a series of coincidences that build upon one another until you have a, a case. Now, you obviously can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt without DNA or something like that, but we're just never going to have that unless we're really lucky. Uh, there's some artifact, you know, from a victim or something, but yeah, we're not going to have that. What do you think? Is the case for H.H. H. Holmes as Jack the Ripper a strong one? I think it is. I think it's very strong. At the very least, it makes you think, huh? I think it's very fascinating and very plausible at the very least. And as more comes to light, I'll keep you updated. Uh, thank you for watching. Please like and subscribe and comment. If you're listening and not watching, please send me your thoughts at matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. I'll flash that on the screen, matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. And then tonight, you know, if you hear someone creeping around the outside of your house, you might just want to stay in bed. Thanks for watching and sleep well, if you can. Mm -hmm.